1: Hey, Matthew here, wishing you a happy new year and letting you know that Scaffold is returning with new interviews in two weeks. In the meantime, though, I wanted to put another of my favorites down the feed, my conversation with the academic, educator, and visual artist, Esther Choi. So here it is, episode 49 of Scaffold, which originally aired in July of 2021. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you again soon. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Esther Choi, a New York-based multidisciplinary artist, writer, and architectural historian. The way I first encountered Esther's work was through a symposium she organized with Marika Trotter in Toronto in 2008 called Architecture is All Over, which investigated architecture's simultaneous diminishment and ubiquity in the early 21st century. She and Marika also co-edited a previous essay collection called Architecture at the Edge of Everything Else, which was focused on the space that architecture actually occupies in the contemporary world as it comes into contact with other disciplines, a focus that this podcast definitely shares. I met with Esther on Zoom back in October of 2020 and reached her at her apartment in Brooklyn where I could see some of her earlier photography work hanging on the walls behind her. Esther first trained as a photographer and photography remains a central part of her practice. Her 2019 book, Le Corps Buffet, adopts the form of a subversive cookbook in the form of an artist's book, and features dishes with playful titles and immaculately produced photographs, which seek to engage with the complicated legacies of artists and designers. Among other things, we talked about this project and its deployment of what Esther refers to as soft power, a tactic of introducing challenging and often political ideas through means of seduction, pleasure, and sensation. We also talked about a more recent initiative Esther has led called Office Hours, which acts as an accessible platform for sharing knowledge amongst creatives who identify as Black, Indigenous, and people of color. For Esther, Office Hours has become a way to explore alternative modes and possibilities of education outside of academic institutions. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. The way I first encountered your work as an academic was when I was a student at the University of Toronto. and There was this symposium called Architecture is All Over, um, and as, a, as someone new to the study and practice of architecture, I was so ripped by it. I wondered if you could walk me through how you and Marika um, came to that idea of architecture as being something that's both ubiquitous but also in some kind of terminal state and why for you it was worthwhile uh, trying to organize a conversation around that
0: um so that conference uh, i organized it when i was at ocad um canada is great in the sense that it has a lot of federal funding that you can have money like money to apply for um it's not really the case in the u.s in the same way so i really wanted to while i was in canada take advantage of that (laughs) um but we had edited a book together called architecture at the edge of everything else which literally began as a zine that i started when i was at the gsd as a master student so we had released that book mit at the time was interested in maybe doing a second volume so we um we mark and i were chatting one day about what would be an appropriate topic. I was about to embark on my PhD. She had just enrolled in, her, in the PhD program at Harvard. Um, so we weren't trained as historians, but we were interested in theory for sure, which was basically what the first book that we worked on looked at, um, which was a, about looking at these interdisciplinary connections between architecture as it touches on other fields. Um, and one of the things, the two things that we kept kind of coming up against was in some ways the kind of, um, moral depravity of the profession in terms of sort of the kinds of projects getting built and the kinds of projects getting written about and theorized and yet the kind of values that I think a lot of people actually held that weren't in alignment with these projects. Um, you have to imagine too, this was ten years ago, so, you know, parametricism and all of that was sort of like and it's like, you know, most flamboyant it was a very flamboyant moment for all of that. Um And there wasn't a lot of writing at that moment in architecture, at least, uh, that looked at the relationship between architecture and neoliberalism and globalization in ways that I think were, um, you know, part of like the dominant conversation. And I'll admit that I think sometimes when you're in the contours, the inner contours of a moment, it's really difficult to have a kind of precision curatorially around a program. And part of it was also I think, with this type of editorial work, um, you know, it's hard to kind of have a thesis that's like concretized before you actually, you know, you're you're inviting, you know, the the book ended up inviting 22 people to a conversation. And I I can't, you know, prescribe what people are going to say. So that conversation took shape in real time through that conference, but then also through a series of uh, submissions that we had after. Um, And then that book took like 10, like, no, seven years to come out. Um, But even within a a span of seven years, not only did a lot of the contributors sort of like they all um, sort of grew into their, you know, professional roles more and kind of became really more well known by the time the book came out um, in some cases. But I think some of the conditions that we were trying to um, identify had exacerbated to the point where, you know, it's as if like that delay in time for the book to come out was really useful because it's as if, you know, sort of. I don't know if it's public consensus, but a kind of like cultural imagination seemed to have caught up with a certain moments such that when that book came out, a lot of people seemed to kind of understand what we were trying to talk about.
1: There's a lot embedded in what you've just said, and I kind of want to pick apart um, a few strings to follow. The first has to do with this idea of entrepreneurialism that um, is introduced in the book itself in the introduction where uh, you and Marika say that part of the, I guess, project of the symposium was to animate two ignored or reviled aspects of the discipline of architecture. And you might say that the pieces of this book begin to collectively reimagine the ethical and un- entrepreneurial dimensions of architecture. And it just makes me realize, as you're describing the efforts you went through to to realize the symposium and then the book itself, that there's a There's a vein of entrepreneurialism that's made its way into academia as well, and so to what extent do you see yourself as a kind of entrepreneur academic
0: For me, entrepreneurialism isn't synonymous with um, like capitalist entrepreneurialism right um, it's really about Self-initiating projects and identifying resources that are available, and in, in imagining and privileging resourcefulness over the resources themselves. So really trying to think about what what materials and tools I have to work with, what resources do I have, what technologies do I have access to to you know make a project happen. It's gonna sound so cheesy, but I think actually playing in like punk and hardcore bands when I was younger, I learned you know it was at that height of that DIY kind of ethos where everyone was self-publishing, starting a band. just pack up a van and rent, you know, rent it or whatever and, like, tour. Like, it was just, like, you just did these things on your own um, and you just identified what you needed and also what you had and you worked with with that. And so that's an ethos that I've always sort of abided by, but I don't... And maybe because I studied art before architectural history, uh, I mean, that's always how I made work. So that's sort of how I've always approached everything I've done, whether it's in exhibition or in some ways my dissertation even or whatever it might be right um i've always had to work with what i had you know and i can i can try to apply for a grant but oftentimes you know i won't get that grant or whatever you're you know it's a hundreds thousands of people are up for the same thing and so i think for me it's also more interesting It it pushes me to be more rigorous in my thinking and experimentation and creativity to try to figure out what I can do with what I have, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that's really, I don't think that that's really, I mean, it's encouraging to think that I think academics might be operating that way, but I think academics are the opposite. Oftentimes academics are really interested in the kind of pathways that are prescribed to them via the academy, Mm -hmm. right, you know? And also in academia, you have to be one thing. You can't be multiple things. You can't be a historian that also makes things sometimes and you can't be an architect that also is you know what i mean like it's it's really siloed and striated for a lot of reasons especially if you're going through tenure track or whatever it might be you know everything has to fit on a cv in a template literally inst- that is mm. institutionalized you know so um i don't I I think there are some instances I know those people. <laughs> I think like we find each other, but I know historians that curate that are, or people who are like, you know, um, professors that, are, you know, are in comp lit that then curate like really amazing shows with contemporary mm-hmm. artists. And I know, you know what I mean? Like I know people that break those boundaries, but they're mm-hmm. very, very rare.
1: So, so this is probably an opportunity to talk in more detail now about your career and the the kind of ambiguous position you occupy as a practitioner academic. I mean, it's interesting just just mapping that trajectory of study. I, I have it written out here. You, you did a bachelor's of fine art at Ryerson, master's of fine art at Concordia, master's in design studies at Harvard, and then uh, in twenty nineteen you finished your PhD at Princeton. And like that is, that is to me like an unwieldy collection of titles, <laughs> or credentials. And at the same time, I feel like it speaks to um, a current moment uh, where, especially in times of precarity, we're driven back into school. In a way, it's one of the safer environments to be. And I wondered for you um, why it was important to continue down this track and to gain all these degrees. Yeah,
0: that's a good question. I never I never aspired to be that person um, with all of the degrees? Because I was interested in the intersections between art and architecture. I was really, really worried about not, like, I didn't want to be a tourist when it came to architectural ideas and concepts, which is usually how it's approached by artists and vice versa. You know, like architects always make claims about making art when they're not really making art. I don't know what they're doing. They're making like bad architecture or whatever they're doing, (laughs) you know, like, because it's not participating in a discourse of art making. So, um, I was really, really nervous about that. So I thought that I would just do this master's degree and then go back to Canada because I got this teaching job right out of GSD and, you know, like be an artist, you know, or whatever. And then, the, you know, I ended up putting out that book with MIT and then, you know, the conference and everything. And the more that I became embedded within architecture, culture, architectural discourse, and contributing to it, I realized the gaps in my own knowledge and training, and my interest in it, frankly. Um, so I was still making artwork about architectural ideas, but I under- like I was constantly confronting the limitations of my own understanding. Um, and so that's why I applied to do a PhD. But I would I would say that I know I do know, I very much know people who retreat to academia because of the economy and stuff. I That was never a motivator for me, ever. And I always am incredibly uh, wary of that because it's not enough to sustain you. Fear is not enough to sustain you to finish a degree like a PhD. It's just uh, maybe fear of obsolescence because you might be so old by the time you finish it if you don't, like, finally, like, complete it. But I'm... It's... it's For me, that feels very disingenuous. And also, I just try not to make decisions out of fear. Um, It... I also... Also, always worked. I worked as a motion graphics producer. I was a photo assistant. I shot editorial photography for like a bunch of magazines like Dazed and, you know, like another magazine, all those, whatever. Um, I was always, always earning a living, you know, working jobs. I worked in a record store in my undergrad for five years. I like, you know, I've always been schlepping and, um, And actually, those experiences have been really important, especially the producing and working in industry and in in fields that were adjacent even to what I was actually even studying. But um, anyway, so this is to say, yeah, I've never had the option of retreating to academia. And also, even if you are in academia, it's not really a retreat from any financial pressures unless you're like, you know the offspring of an oil baron or something because it's like you still have to it's expensive to go to school frankly you know and I don't you know I didn't come from a lot of money so it wasn't really an option for me to not work so um yeah so that's sort of why I ended up doing all these degrees um and in the end I ended up you know I think I'm still sort of if I'm honest like I had a hard time I went through moments of sometimes only wanting to call myself an architectural historian or a scholar and not wanting to call myself an artist and other times where I would call myself an artist but not a historian and it's because I, there wasn't I didn't feel that um, academia in particular was particularly like was hospitable to those kinds of you know composite identities in any way um, yeah and now I'm sort of I don't care anymore I think but. But, you know, this is like a classic problem, though. Even Adrian Piper has had this problem. You know, she's a was a, a philosopher, a professor of philosophy, you know, and studied philosophy at Harvard, did her PhD there, but was also a conceptual artist. The two things, though, don't aren't necessarily conflated into one thing, and she doesn't want to, you know? Like, she's a Kantian philosopher, so she'll write books on Kantian philosophy, um, and then she'll make art about, like, what she wants to make art about, you know? And those are two separate aspects of her identity which i've instead of trying to mesh everything and sometimes i do think that my training as a historian completely informs how i make art but i i don't know that those two things have to end up being the same thing if that makes sense like i still write for academic journals that are peer-reviewed as a historian i still make art intended for different audiences and different um, venues you know and those two things can be separate for me if that makes sense
1: Soft power is a topic that seems to come up in various projects of yours. It's it's a concept introduced by the political science, Joseph Nye. And uh, you've referenced it, I guess, most recently in a project from last year called The mm-hmm. Um, which was a art book, cookbook.
0: Yeah, so that book, I wrote that book and shot it and released it while finishing my dissertation the same year as my dissertation last year. I started, well, this actually comes back to the entrepreneurship thing of like, I just, I think I was really creatively starved when I was working on my dissertation. It was just, it's a very long, solitary process. And I was using food as a medium to start to, you know, try to ask questions around cultural um, cultural consumption and, just the kinds of narratives that we privilege in the writing of histories. I mean, this is literally what I was doing all day, right? And I was going through the arch- the Gropius archives, like all of these archives of these really famous architects and asking myself like you know, how, like do I really want to contribute to this history in the same way? In the end, I like I don't. I I don't think I do, but I had basically like a roster of the most famous men of modern biology and architecture and art like in my dissertation that's what I look at, but I, I, t- I try to tell a very different story actually about you know some of the things that they worked on together. but in any case, um, so that was like looking at food as a, a medium that I'd never considered before my practice. you know, I, I would consider myself quite formal in a lot of ways. Food for me is quite informal. It was like very accessible. it was readily available. and I would put on these kind of dinners where it started off as kind of like a joke but also a way for me to think through. Um, some of these uh, bigger conceptual problems that I was seeing in the writing of history period.
1: And so you're looking at Walter Grubb as in a banquet that was held for him, right? You came across a menu.
0: Right. So I came across a menu, yeah, when I was doing my dissertation research um, for his farewell dinner in London. And it ended up becoming a cookbook, which I hadn't anticipated. Um, I was just doing these events because they kind of offered me a bit of like reprieve from sitting in front of my laptop for 12 hours a day trying to turn out these chapters for my dissertation um and help me to actually wrestle with i think some bigger questions but i was really again like in the contours of the moment i didn't really understand like i was doing it intuitively i think more more than anything else um when the book came about um that was sort of a surprise to me, but I had already been thinking about how it could relay into a publication because I do like making books. Um, and Joseph Nye's work, I can't remember who even, how I came across it or who introduced it to me, but what's interesting about Soft Power, the book, um, you know, is that it's about, it's a book about, you know, international, like foreign affairs, right? It's about kind of like the role of culture in the cultural diplomacy and international di- political diplomacy, Um, amongst nation states but it was so fascinating to me that like you know the former um, dean of the school of government at harvard is writing about the role of culture in in ways that artists and architects aren't even really considering about their own work Um, so that concept became interesting in terms of thinking about the role of culture in in political persuasion um, in the role of culture in Softening or creating seduction out of through experiences to then create you know a different kind of sensibility or openness to certain sets of ideas.
1: I just have to say that the images in this book are deeply seductive. It takes food photography to like a new level of almost high art, Um, and it's just worth noting. I mean, we the the kind of playful seduction at play in this project has as much to do with the, the food as art analogy as the titling of the dishes. So we have like the Lena Bobardi cocktail, Lena Bobacardi cocktail, the Rem Brulee, Denise Scott brownies, Carolee Schneeman, uh, Meat Joy Balls, Lawrence Wieners, etc., etc. So there's this really strong connection between the world of um, high art and, and abstract art in particular and architecture as well. And um, the kind of baser world of food, which is elevated, I think, because of that relationship.
0: I think food, though, has become... One of the things I talk about in the intro, though, is that it's become such a scarce commodity, though, in the same way, you know? When you think about, like, where gastronomic, like where gastronomy has sort of taken itself, that there is... It's, it has increasingly... Neoliberalism, essentially, in the market have, like, taken food... At, which was at one point, well, it is just something that we need to survive, but, you know, art used to also be that, right? Like we used to all just do these things and be, have them become, um, you know, three indices of basically privatization, you know, like they've become so inaccessible for for many. So when I talk to, what's been interesting about that project is when I talk to food people about, food people gravitate towards that book for different reasons, obviously, than they are design people do but they intrinsically understand what i'm talking about when i talk about that kind of privatization and the way in which this kind of elevation of food food into an experience economy has created such an elite kind of um consumption you know uh an elite class of people that look to food for those kinds of rarefied experiences in the same way that even art in some ways dematerialized to become like an experience economy
1: Mm. I find, to me, this is such a delectable conundrum. When I first saw the book, I thought it was just beautiful pictures of food with ironic art world names attached to them, and um, that it was kind of art photography as well. Um, and you've mentioned this phrase a few times, the contours of, of a moment, which I've read in another interview you gave. It comes from George Kubler's Shape of Time, talking about the way you can both be inside and outside the contours of history. And there's this challenge I imagine you must face as a historian and a practitioner of art of somehow being shaped by the forces that you critique. And I wondered if you could talk about your experience of that through this project of uh, Corbeau or if you kind of came up against those kinds of tensions.
0: Oh, constantly. I mean, even working with a mainstream publisher, it you know, like they're a subsidiary of of Penguin Random House and like don't get me wrong, I like it was an amazing experience to work with a trade publisher, but their objectives as a trade publisher are very different than like, you know, if I'm working with like a leftist like Marxist imprint of, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's not a it's not a small art book publisher, right? This is like um yeah i mean we we operate in a field of capitalism you know that is the world we live in to go back to the soft power thing though the the reason why the cookbook was interesting to me was the idea of hacking a kind of circulation network of mainstream cookbook publishing which at this point in the past five years or so has become the biggest seller of like that's the largest sort of area of books um the book market basically is is food Hmm. um so it was I was trying to experiment with whether or not you could introduce a critical message into a circulation network that was unsuspecting, mm. um, which is why self power for me has always become a really interesting idea, but also that you could try to um you know, introduce challenging or political ideas through seduction and pleasure and sensation. And which is like what a lot of architects in the 60s did. So it, I didn't know what to expect because I certainly there's a precedent of artists that are interested in Trojan horses. And Lucy Lepard wrote a really great essay about that, about how activist ideas and art can often like shed their self-consciousness as an art object like get off the plinth in some ways get out of the institution and actually try to interface with the world as such those are things that are deeply interesting to me it's also why architecture was always deeply interesting to me as an artist because it's like the art form you can touch you Mm. know it's a kind of it's a very political social technological object that you can touch whereas in you know museums you don't you can't touch these things as you know as such so um So in any case, that sort of, yeah, all of those things were kind of in my constellation of like ideas and, um, but then the book, I mean, I couldn't have, I approached all the food photographs or the photographs of the food as sculptures. That was sort of my interest in thinking about them as sculptural media. I wasn't interested in like, I also was reacting very much to representations of food and, you know, they're kind of, um, the way it's like hyper stylized. And i I find really problematic actually you know on instagram and the pinterest and Mm. all of that the kind of economy of imagery around food um so yeah i was reacting to all those things but um it completely when it when it came out i didn't really know what to expect and then it just kind of hit the cultural water supply and it just like it was gobbled up by every almost every mainstream media outlet imaginable in ways that haven't necessarily translated to book sales but like (laughs) it was shocking how many um outlets just wanted to use basically just use the imagery and the press package as like a free free article space free editorial photography basically and just republish the, the images ad nauseum. so it ended up in like vanity fair france to like vogue in the u.s to you know, the Daily Beast and, like, you know, really New York Times, like, big media outlets, but also really weird places. Like, um, there's this one luxury – I didn't even know about it. This like, luxury magazine called The Rob Report, and it's literally just, like, a blog or a website of mansions and Rolexes. And, I mean – and then it – then but then they advertised the book or they did this little piece on the book. It's just, like, this really weird book, with this really weird coffee table book, and they just <laughs> – but they – But it was weird that it could infiltrate into even those kinds of sectors where there's very much a critique around class and economy and production in terms of like, I mean, oftentimes you'll see that the food is surrounded by like plastic and waste and objects that are not edible. And um, that was very like uh, intentional on my part, but Mm. it's like literally pieces of garbage, like around, (laughs) you know, like waste (laughs) packaging. Um, And so to imagine that this would end up on some, like, wealthy developer's coffee table, you know what I mean, in his mansion or something, it just, all of it was so bizarre to me, but said a lot, I think, right now about how people about, and this is sort of something I'm really thinking a lot about, but I had a conversation with Whitney Mallett, who's a writer, Um, she interviewed me for Pinup Magazine, and we were talking about that kind of, um, the production value of the photos, given that I had You know i i I still sometimes work as an editorial photographer you know like i still shoot for the times and stuff and do a lot of still life stuff for t magazine and um but there's a certain kind of like lighting that i use in my work um and especially my editorial work that seems to look like produced or expensive or professional um and when it butts up against things like you know dirty paper cups like a coffee cup and then like, I don't know, a piece of like quiche herring or something resting on or like bits of tin foil or whatever it might be that like the things that you have around your house, um, that people cease to see actually there's like it's somehow the object loses its semiotic value and it, actually the production takes over the semiotic value, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's actually the production is signifying something more than the actual thing itself. Um, if that makes sense.
1: It seems like such a problem then, because um, if the production value is the ultimate value of the image, then does the the kind of Trojan horse aspirations of the project somehow get uh, upset by that? I mean, if it's making its way into uh, onto the coffee tables of people who read luxury um, magazines, uh, lifestyle magazines, do you think that there's still reading the political content of the image?
0: I think the production value is the Trojan horse. That's what I'm realizing now, right? The production value is the thing that where you can kind of sneak in ideas that seem to have a veneer of something. But if you actually really look at it and then just read the blurb about the artist or whatever, um, and then you start to see ideas around identity or political, you know, like there's the political content in that, that it opens up, the you know that's mm-hmm. like the kind of the veneer of the thing and then the thing can emerge from within that's my that's that's what I'm thinking is happening because but, but at, at this point capitalism is just so wily that it can co-opt anything even things that don't look <laughs> produced are highly produced do you uh-huh. know what I mean like things that look like they're photocopied are actually just like a filter that makes it look like it's photocopied like the simulacra aspect of everything is just so like it's so incestuous in some ways and also just so like, um, there's no, uh, sense of propriety around like source material and how it's reused in this post-production culture. So I, I don't know. I, it's really, it's confusing. I'm not sure what to think of it. Um, but Mm -hmm. it's been interesting to observe definitely how it's kind of played out in that way. But I've taken a lot of flack for like the fact that I've made something that is really mainstream. And also something that seems really anti-intellectual at first, right? And seems fun, which you're not supposed to be. If you're serious academic, you cannot be fun and you cannot be accessible, right? So, and also you can't be a woman dealing with food. If I was a man working with food, I would have a very different, I'm sure I would have like be invited to all the biennials to like, you know, do some kind of like event or whatever. But as a woman dealing with food, I think architecture also has incredible, um, it, there's there's a lot of discomfort around that still because hmm. um, i've had a lot of really disparaging comments from men like oh are you in the kitchen these days you know making up a new recipe or something and it's sort <laughs> of like these are like tenured professors at like reputable institutions saying this to me and i'm just hmm. sort of like i don't think you understand what i'm what you know but also even if I was, like, what was what would be wrong with that, right? So uh-huh. it's, but that's what I mean. It's like, there's all these like assumptions that are embedded within that, that I think that the field specifically has to really kind of contend with that.
1: It's funny um, that there yeah. is actually a, a chef by the name of Esther Choi.
0: I know, I think I'm ruining her life. <laughs> I think I'm ruining her life, but at the same time, whenever she's, like, incorrectly tagged for my work, she <laughs> never corrects anyone. So I think she's still, like, trying to use any kind of, huh. I don't know. Not that I have I bring any social capital to her, but, like, I think, I don't know. Yeah, she's never, there have been moments where people have confused us, and oh, it happens often. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah.
1: I want to just get back to this idea of soft power and the way it relates to this other um phenomenon in art, which is of institutional critique. It seems like it's a topic you're really interested in in your own critical and academic writing, where uh, you mentioned hippie modernism. Uh, In an essay you wrote for that book, kind of tracing the tradition of institutional critique in architecture through design movements from the 1960s and figures like Jonah Friedman, And then more recently, um, Samuel Maccabee or Practice Architecture, Practices you refer to as well. But then you've also written about Assemble, uh, who are based in London, in this essay called Sociable Realism. I'm curious to what extent you see yourself as a part of this tradition of institutional critique, but from within the institution uh, that, uh, that you operate in. Um, And to what extent you're kind of borrowing techniques from art practice uh, into the world of academic writing and criticism?
0: We're used to capital no critique, like negational critique, right? And that's been the predominant um, axis by which we talk about critique in architecture or in art or whatever. But there are ways in which, of course, like seduction Mm -hmm. and other kinds of, you know, quote unquote, atmospheric effects or sensory effects can produce a different kind of awareness of oneself in relation to a certain situation or a set of factors, et cetera. So, um, yeah, so I I see all of it actually as, uh, it's critical and it's critique, but in the very kind of like German sense of the word critique, which is about dialogue, you know, it's not like negation. I'm still participating in a situation, but that was also always the kind of, um, I guess, paradox of institutional critique as an artistic practice, especially, you know, it's practiced by people like Hans Hacke. You know, I remember talking to um, this artist, relational artist. um, It'll come back to me. But anyways, he pointed out, I thought really smartly, that basically institutional critique of a certain generation, like the Hans Hacke generation, especially in the like, you know, the 70s and early 80s, um, was a bunch of like, it's like a bunch of guys got, had access who were privileged enough to get into the fancy like fancy club right they're sitting around their club chairs smoking cigars and drinking their whiskey complaining about what a shitty club it is but the point is is that they got into the club right which is like basically the thing about the paradox around institutional critique is that oftentimes these museums are hosting artists usually male artists to come into the museum to critique the museum So you still require an invitation into the shitty club to talk about how shitty the club is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas there's like still, you know, a whole swath of people that never get into that club. Mm
1: -hmm. So I have this burning question. When you mention the club, (laughs) this kind of, uh, this idea of being part of a history or a tradition or a movement, um, I just wonder, based on the kinds of people that you've been looking at in your research, including people like Ropius or collectors like House Rooker, Co. I mean, these are are clubs that in some way, I imagine you as a practitioner want to trace your lineage to. But at the same time, there are clubs that are defined by specific identities. These are white men of quote-unquote historical importance. And I'm wondering... um, if, as a, in your role as a historian, you ever faced any tension or qualms about placing yet more focus on these individuals, as opposed to other more marginalized histories? Well, it's also very different, I guess, as, a, as an Asian woman historian studying someone like Walter Gropius. I just wonder if you could talk about the role of identity in historiography and the decision to focus on these figures um, versus other lesser-known ones.
0: I feel like I've never been allowed in the club. <laughs> this club is not for me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, I'm looking through the curtains, like from a different building into that club, and I'm, I'm not necessarily even just critiquing the figures. I'm actually critiquing the, cri- the lack of critique of these figures, if that makes sense. Mm. So that's sort of like where I've, I think a lot of my writing has come from. Which is to say, well, specifically around certain figures, like maybe maybe someone like Gropius, or my dissertation in particular. So, um, although he's kind of a minor figure in my dissertation, but I look at lots of f- famous white men in my dissertation, and I'm I'm in trying to offer a kind of minor history that really problematizes a lot of this work and writing, and I'm not necessarily just pointing the fig- f- finger at the specific historical actor that I happen to be writing about, but I'm actually engaging with, uh, you know, decades of uncritical writing that have enabled a certain kind of narrative around, uh, about this historical actor. That's who I think I'm actually having a conversation with. Do you know what I mean? Like, at this point, like, Gropius is like Gumby or something. Like, he's a kind of, like, cipher or stand-in for um, actually a whole history of writing about people you know mm-hmm. and a lack of interpretive matrix that have um that where interpretation and observation have been completely written by a very like a handful of people that have been very blindfolded by their own privilege in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, because they're asking very different kinds of questions that i ask so that's who i think i'm actually having a conversation with mm-hmm. so usually why that's I think that's also why, like, my footnotes tend to be very, like, can be very burdensome for an editor or, <laughs> like, even my advisor. Because I'm having all kinds of conversations with people in the writing. Like, this book that came out? Like, what was this person thinking? And, like, how could they have completely ignored this? And, da, 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 you know? um, So I think it's – I think that sort of – yeah. So, but, but to take your point, like um, – but to your point, I think there are also historians that do that kind of recuperative work of – bringing in new voices and identities to the canon. Um, I, I don't know that I've, I don't, I'm interested in that work. And that work is incredibly necessary. But I see myself in that way, I think, as operating maybe more along the lines of the institutional critique, like, okay, so let's take these canonical players and let's actually like ask a different set of questions about them because they're never gonna go away, unfortunately. Mm. And it's also gonna take a really long time for us to accept all of those new, when you think about all the gatekeeping and publishing even, right? Like, you know, one of the things that have come up in conversations with other educators in the moment in, in, in recent times um, um, around decolonizing education or even just like broadening the kind of toolkit of precedents that architects are supposed to look at or qu- or can look look at is that oftentimes these histories are written by white folks about people of color, right? And very rarely do you have people of color writing their own histories. So there is this kind of like implicit bias that's like in our field never really addressed in the way that other fields like anthropology would require you to do as part of your training, right? Mm. We never really talk about that. There's no sense of like ethnographic, um, there's no kind of like self-awareness I think put in into that project, um, So there's a lot of weird ideas that get kind of interpretations that like get muddied into that, you know, of even new voices in the canon that we're supposed to look at. But also it takes a really long time for not only for the dissertations to be written or that work, that historical work and research to be done. um, But then you have the next step of then having all the gatekeepers and every editor I've ever worked with has been white. You know, like every single editor I've ever worked with has been a white person and you have to then justify why this thing is important and should make it through. But of course, you know, everyone wants to be objective you know, or think that they are operating professionally in an objective way. But if you haven't done the work of holding the mirror up to yourself, like who's to say what is, do you know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. So there's all these kinds of like, so, so even if the. There, there are countless dissertations written of people that I think are deserving that would contribute to the canon, but they're not being published. You know, they're not being published. And and you know, does Peter Eisenman need more books? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. Do you know what I mean? But that's like on editors because they they actually have huge power in what they sanction to be part. Of, you know, what they allow because and if you if it get, never gets published, then you know you can never put that on your syllabus like it can never right mm. so it's, it's there's just a, it's a whole kind of emb imbo- like I- embedded nested problem i think where the the publishing platforms the educational platforms the practice platforms all of these things are actually intertwined in ways that you know i think most folks don't really like think about mm-hmm. and they just are kind of always saying like why don't historians write more histories about you know people of color it's like they are <laughs> They are. But then also when you look at the kind of breakdown of PhD programs and how they're just, you know, office hours began actually via me just holding two Zoom calls, putting out a a call on Instagram, having like strangers Zoom in from around the world, all people of color, talking about PhD programs. And I remember afterwards one fellow private message privately messaged me to say like thank you for doing that but also a you're the first academic that's ever talked about class openly because about the financial barriers to studying and i was like yeah i get that like i went to school with a a lot of very wealthy people (laughs) i was not one of them but i had to pretend i was like kind of keeping up with the joneses because it's like a very competitive (laughs) environment but also it's a very wealthy you know i went to schools filled with very wealthy people you know and And I went to public school. Like, that's just not my upbringing, you know? And so he found that that was really refreshing. But then also that he said, I never thought that doing a PhD would even be a possibility or an option for me because it just seemed like a space for very wealthy white folks. And I just said to him, well, it is it is a space for very wealthy white folks. And most of the people that do PhDs have like family members that are academics or doctors and lawyers or professionals or, you know what I mean? And that they can ask these questions to and look to. And Mm. so this is to say like, I'm getting off topic, but, um, but when you look at the breakdown of people in PhD programs and they'll often post their bios on the websites of these schools, right? Look at, look at the faces of these folks on there, you know, and it's a predominantly white, field still right Mm -hmm. and this is why for me like all of it you know it's not just about having you know more more quote-unquote diversity in terms of like precedence because then it's who's writing those histories what's what kind of politics and ethics are informing the writing of those histories um who's publishing those histories like you know what i mean like and and who's teaching them you know and until the entire structure of the of all of those systems actually demonstrate willingness to actually open up and change you're just not nothing's gonna nothing's gonna happen right this is why you have you know like right now you're seeing a lot of like You know, white male professors who are tenured wanting to realizing that basically that the curriculum for the past couple decades has been completely irrelevant and now suddenly putting Angela Davis on their syllabi for real, (laughs) you know, as opposed to actually making space for somebody that could really talk about questions of race and, you know, intersectionality or whatever in design practice from not only an embodied perspective but a professional perspective right Mm -hmm. so it's just like well let me just like slot in these different folks into my syllabi even if I personally as an educator and a scholar may have absolutely no awareness of the work itself you know what I mean so it's still like kind of like um it's still kind of a mastery and a kind of imperialism I think or a kind of like ownership of, of that space that until we rethink, I think, the entire tenure system, hmm. like all of it. I don't know that we're gonna see the kind of change, the radical change that we wanna see. I don't know. And I say that as somebody that's like been in that system for twenty years, so I'm probably making myself completely unhireable via this interview. I'm I'm just being honest, you know. I've been on so many hiring committees and accreditation committees, and I've been in three departments at a university. I've like, I was tenured, you know, like all these things. I've been through the entire process and I've come out the other side, and I'm really deeply interested in reimagining completely from the ground up, like what. Education should look like and for me like one of the biggest points is that it should be free. You know, it should be free and accessible
1: Obviously so much has happened this year Around a kind of more collective awakening to the realities of systemic racism and That's becoming legible within curriculum within conversations about how we teach and what we teach um, How and what we publish and how authority is distributed. But it's also become legible, I think, in, in the work we choose to do as well. And I know that um, we were talking about these more kind of oblique strategies of, of um, political rhetoric in projects like Corbuffet, um, which have to do with the kind of subtleties and nuance of artistic expression. But, I mean, something really radical seems to have happened with your practice as well. You mentioned office hours. And, I mean, just going through as an outsider, scrolling through your Instagram feed even, um, prior to the summer, um, I mean, it was more about the, this kind of aesthetic project of food photography as an outsider would see it, I guess, on first impression um before the kind of trojan message makes itself clear and then suddenly there is um this other practice entirely office hours isn't a subtle project it isn't any kind of trojan horse it's very direct and it's about increasing uh increasing the accessibility of you know working within academia or working within the design disciplines to, to people of color who or historically have been on the margins. And so I wonder if you could speak to that shift in approach from the, uh, the subtleties of institutional critique to a very direct and forthright critique of the institution.
0: It's funny that you think it's direct because I think for a lot of people they've seen it as pretty harmless because it's a kind of like, it's literally a Zoom call that happens once a week this is like, well, I think there are actually a lot of similarities in the Cuerre Buffet in the sense that they're both projects around cultural democracy, right? They're both about questions around access and accessibility um, and using circulation network, different kinds of circulation networks that are actually readily available in some way, right? So, um, and, and simple materials and resources. So, uh, Office Hours is a weekly BIPOC mentoring series that started really just as an experiment, a social experiment, just like Le Corbuffet was a kind of experiment of gathering people together in conversation around certain sets of ideas and issues. Um, the format is like deeply simple, right? It's like, I, there's a practitioner that I feature every week um, and they spend the first 15 to 20 minutes talking about their professional experience and trajectory and then they, we just open it up to Q&A and folks from all, all over the world actually join these calls, which is really amazing. So I always feel bad for the folks that are like up at 4 a.m. to join these calls. But it's also really meaningful to me that they're doing that because, you know, they could be sleeping, frankly. But it's a BIPOC only space as well, which I really fight to maintain because we do get a lot of folks trying, signing up for it that aren't BIPOC at all. Um, But I think it's important because the questions inevitably always become about being a person of color, trying to um, operate in a monoculture that's really inhospitable to them. And, and I think so in any case, but, but the tools themselves of, of office hours are are incredibly simple. It's a zoom account and that's it. That's the only thing I pay for. I mean, I have to eventually pay for speakers because at this point I'm running out of, people to invite you know I am like I'm just calling in favors and I was like joking that if I so we're about to launch into a fundraising initiative because I think the thing is well the thing's actually kind of grown really surprisingly and it's been really amazing to see but um it's a. Uh, You know, I was joking that I'm gonna have to start asking family members to like join in for the next season because it's like I'm running out of people to ask to do something for free. But um, but everyone's just doing it for free because they've so far so far because they all know what it's been like to not have anyone to ask and also to not know anyone that looks like them doing the thing they want to do, which is crazy. On that level, I think questions around access and accessibility and representation, all of those things, are things that I'm interested in. And also the stories that we tell, right? Like, how do you create a space where you can tell an alternative story? So all of those things, I think, um, are actually very similar in some ways to Le Croix Buffet in very different formats, obviously, which is why I'm interested in the whole Trojan horse thing, right? That you can take a certain set of ideas and find them in very different formats. But mm. um, but the, the format itself is actually incredibly conversational and simple. So it's interesting that you find it to be very direct when I think the only direct thing about it is just, like, me just making sure that when, white folks sign on to the events, I just kind of look them up a little bit and confront them and say, like, did you know that this is for BIPOC folks? And oftentimes they do know and they still sign up. And I think it's that they've never been told no. And they've also never had their whiteness ever actually work against them. It's actually done the opposite for them and been a gateway to like access and always being favored to go first or whatever. And so in that way, I think, yeah, I've become like a weird troll on these like email lists of people that sign up, but I do it out knowing that for the folks that 100 folks that show up every week for free, you know, we do these things for free that for them, it means the world to them because they've never had, and I've also never had that space on BIPOC only. It's a very recent thing, actually, um, since like COVID that I've been on Zoom calls with other BIPOC educators or practitioners that are interested in having conversations amongst, as a kind of interethnic kind of conversation. But um, yeah, so it's a long, all my responses to your to your questions are very long. I'm sorry. No, it's, okay. it's like crazy <laughs> over time, but yeah, so I think, like so it's it's in some ways but it's interesting your perception that you find it really direct i find it like people think it's actually quite friendly and you know it's like it's not like it doesn't look like rigorous education you know mm. it's not a master class in like do you know what i mean it's not um it it's not like yeah i mean especially as someone who's been in educa- higher education for 20 years like it's not it doesn't have that vibe at all and in fact i actually like part of the kind of experiment as well has been to ask myself like if I could make my own school like an like kind of like what the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies could have been if it wasn't evil. <laughs> like, um if it was a BIPOC space like the Institute. And I say that as someone who like I spent time in the Institute archives and like really looked at I think, you know, Eisenman was pretty brilliant at how he set up that institute. And but is there, what would that space look and feel like? The feeling part is really important to me. And I was like, I would want it, I would want the branding, the, the vibe of it to feel like, I don't know, I just think back to all the things that I was interested in when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And I was really into like skateboard culture, into punk bands, into like, you know, surf culture aesthetics. I was into like all these things. And that's actually why I go out of my way to make office hours feel like that. Mm-hmm. You know, an actual space that is not about calcified histories and legacy protecting and gatekeeping, but actually a space of like, that feels very welcoming and Mm. very inclusive and hope, and I hope that is the vibe too. Like that's really something that I really try to um, create.
1: I just want to go back to that word direct because I feel like it maybe it didn't come across the right way. What I meant was with projects, like le corps buffet which are about or which are food photography that playfully references the history of abstract art um, there is an obliqueness to that project at face value um, which differs from office hours which is a free mentoring initiative for bipoc people and so that's what i meant like there's this a different mode of practice between those two and i just wonder how y- you i guess your position as an educator and as a practitioner has changed over this past year because of that
0: i think um i'm well i think abstract art and academia are actually very inaccessible to a lot of people right like education and academia may seem more familiar to you specifically or to myself just given our our relative privileges and our backgrounds and our ability to go to school. But what's been interesting on office hours is like you have folks zooming in from all over the place where it's not the case. Right. And, um, so, but, but I'm interested in making, but also because we talk about issues of race and as well as professional issues, like sometimes the questions are like, how do I build for a bathroom renovation? And sometimes the (laughs) questions are like, how do you deal with like, you know, um you know racism in the workplace when you're dealing with a government agency like you know like the questions vary incredibly and they're both totally valid and that, but the point of it is that like the question about racism is just as real as the question about the building for the bathroom right like for bipoc folks like you can't get away from it that's as real as it is about like spending 12 hour days on rhino or whatever it is you know and um for me like but the, but for me what's interesting is that the format is friendly in the way that, like, a cookbook is friendly, do you know, and, and it's also both, now that I think of it, a cookbook, I always, I always like to think about as a kind of like manual for something that, but inherently, you're never going to recreate the original, like, you're looking at a template of something that you might want to try to emulate, but inevitably, what you make will always end up being different than that thing, right? Like, and in the same way with office hours, like, we can have, how to start an architecture office as a topic that could be tackled by 20 different people and they're all gonna have a different answer to it. And the whole takeaway is that the person on the receiving end of that information or asking the question is going to embody their own professional pathways with their own, you know, their own subjectivity. Like the way that they end up answering that question for themselves could be radically different, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of where I see the future, like my future projects, I'm I've become increasingly interested in these circulation networks that are like um like I don't want to jinx it but I've been having like conversations with somebody that a producer that um a- about working in media platforms that I've never in my life would have weirdly I had exp- professional experience working in them just by virtue of like needing a job when I was in grad school you know um but now actually really trying to think about as an artist, what it would mean to hack the system, those systems.
1: What systems in particular?
0: I don't want to give it away because it might jinx it. (laughs) But um, yeah, we'll just say that in, in like a few years, I might release a really weird project, but in a very unexpected platform. But I'm interested in these kind of quote unquote mainstream accessible platforms, not that they're mainstream and populist, but the fact that they're accessible, like going to Harvard University is not an accessible experience. Getting higher education for a lot of people is not accessible. A free Zoom call, if you have Wi-Fi, that's accessible. Most people have some access to Wi-Fi and some kind of device that can bring them on the call, right? Uh, A cookbook, not everyone can spend $29.95 on a cookbook, but it surely is more accessible than a book on an academic press that like you'll never see in a store and you'll never probably at this point cost almost a hundred dollars because only libraries are buying them as you know and i still love teaching and i still love engaging with students but i'm really interested in different platforms for different kinds of conversations as opposed to you know last year i stood up in front of a lecture in a lecture hall and gave lectures for a semester to you know 80 students you know 70 of which were probably sleeping (laughs) like they didn't really care about architectural history but that's just not a format that's like deeply exciting to me,
1: do you mm. know. Mm. And
0: I think if there's other ways of engaging with audiences that are willing and interesting, interested in engaging with you, that 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 is, you know, um, I'm interested in those kinds of like formats. So I don't know. That sounds probably probably a little abstract, but I don't want to. If if this thing happens, which would be really crazy, like I don't know, I don't want to give it away. But
1: okay, it's, I understand.
0: It's a it's like keeping a little wild that um like. The person I was speaking with, like, she could totally see it happening, but she's, like, an industry, like, a you know, industry pro, and I'm, like, just this weirdo coming into that industry, in the same way that with cookbook publishing and the cookbook, and the food world, I was, like, I'm, you know, I kind of entered it, like, from the side, like, I kind of found the side door into that world a little bit, and now I have kind of don't know what to do with that world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just sort of, like, there, but it's been an interesting um, way of, like, navigating
1: mm-hmm. those
0: communities and economies.
1: Well, if this thing, if this project does end up happening, <laughs> I'd love to talk more about it.
0: Yeah, sure. There'll be a lot to talk about if it happens.
1: Esther, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate God, it.
0: No worries. You're going to have a you're
1: going to have a, a yeah. big challenge I've got a real task now. <laughs> That was a rerun of episode 49 of Scaffold, which originally aired in July of 2021. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again with brand new episodes in two weeks.